Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. My Bible is open to Luke chapter 14. I invite you to join me there now as we're studying verse by verse through Luke's gospel. We come to verse 15 this morning, our text verses 15 through 24, Luke chapter 14. The title of the message is The Supersized Supper. You remember that the setting of Luke 14 is in the home of an unnamed leader of a religious sect of Judaism, a group called the Pharisees. Jesus had been invited to this luncheon under the guise of hospitality and generosity. But it was likely all of this was a ruse to try to catch Jesus in sin. It was the Sabbath day and the Pharisees had very strict rules about the observance of the Sabbath. So they introduced to Jesus a man who had obvious physical problems. They had hoped that Jesus would heal this man and therefore in their minds break the prohibition of doing work on the Sabbath. And so they would have means to accuse him. But they were wrong. Jesus turned the tables and held up, as it were, a mirror to their souls. He began to ask them a series of questions. One of the questions he asked them is, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they didn't say a word. And then he asked the group, he says, which one of you would have a child, a son who fell in a well? Or or lowering the bar, he said, even an ox, a piece of property, that fell in a well would not rescue him from that well. Again, they were stunned into silence. And then he turned his attention to the host of the party. And he says, when you throw a party, don't just invite those who can reciprocate. Don't invite uh, the politically up and in. Don't invite the wealthy. And instead he said, invite the cripple, the poor, the lame, that is the powerless. And again, there was silence. And Jesus then took note of how everyone in the room was jockeying for the best seats, the most prestigious seats around the banquet table. And he rebuked them for that and called them to humility in this life so that they could enjoy exaltation in the life to come. And once again, there was silence in the room. Well, if you've ever been in a public setting where someone says or does something that stops down the party, there is bound to be someone who tries to break the tension by saying something to lighten the mood. Well, enter verse 15. Let's start reading there. When one of those who were reclining at the tables with him heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. This man who was at the party, one of the Pharisees apparently, realized that Jesus had brought the room way down with his rebukes. This was supposed to be fun. This was supposed to be a party. And so he, I take it, lifts up his glass and gives a toast. And he says, Blessed are those who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Well, they all could agree to that. And I'm sure he got a lot of amens and right-ons. But really what he was giving was a beatitude, a blessing, a toast to them. And and it reveals some things about the man who offered it and those who agreed with it. Number one, this man realized that when Jesus talked about giving a party and being humble and not taking the best seats, he was talking about something eternal rather than temporary in nature. Jesus was not giving a lesson, we said, on social etiquette. He was talking about salvation. He was talking about the kingdom of heaven. The second thing this reveals about this man is that he believed, this Pharisee, that he and his friends would be there. 
to take and eat bread in the kingdom of heaven. In fact, thirdly, he believed that he and his friends would have the seats of honor there. And remember I told you that the Pharisees, though they had good and noble beginnings, had turned into a mutual admiration society where they slapped one another on the back and reminded each other that they were going to be important eternally. Now let's look at how Jesus responded to this man's toast. Verse 16, But he said to him, A man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land, and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to the slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame. And the slave said, Master, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. May the Lord add his blessing, the reading and hearing of his word. So Jesus responded to this man's toasting of himself and the other Pharisees with a parable. You remember that a parable is an earthly story, but it has a heavenly meaning. And I like to call this particular parable that Jesus tells here the story of the supersized supper. Verse 16, he says, a certain man was preparing a great banquet. Now you know that the New Testament was written in the Greek language originally. And Greek and English have a lot in common. In fact, a lot of our English words derive from Greek words, especially our prefixes and suffixes. But one interesting thing about Greek is that the adjectives typically come after the nouns. Rather, in English, the adjectives precede the nouns. For example, if you see a car you like, you might say that's a beautiful car. The adjective beautiful comes before the noun car, or that's a large ship. But in the Greek, the word order would be inverted. We would say that is a car beautiful, or a ship large. Well, the Greek sentence here in verse 16, if we were to translate it word for word, would say something uh, very unusual. Because the noun here for the word supper or banquet is the word dapnon. It simply means the last and usually the largest meal of the day. So here's how the phrase reads literally in the Greek. A certain man was preparing a dapnon mega. And so you know where I got the title, a supersized supper. He is preparing a supersized supper for his friends. And this morning I want us to look at the meaning of the supersized supper and three reasons why it is so super. Well, first the meaning. I take it that Jesus is affirming in his parable the theology of the Pharisees. Remember the man lifted his glass and said, Blessed are those who eat bread in the kingdom of God. Jesus had talked about the resurrection. And so they're on the same wavelength. They're talking about eternity. They're talking about uh, judgment to come. And so this man congratulates himself and the others that we're going to be on the right side of history when it's all said and done. And Jesus says, no, you're not. But he doesn't say it like that. He says it with this parable. Now, where would this Pharisee, who was a student of the Old Testament, get such a notion that one day there's going to be a banquet 
in the kingdom to come. Well, I think it's from the book of Isaiah. So if you have your Bible, let's turn there quickly. Isaiah chapter 25. You remember that Isaiah was one of the great prophets of God and he called the nation to repentance as most of the prophets did. But of course, like with most of the prophets, the people by and large ignored him. And in Isaiah chapter 25, beginning in verse 6, this is what Isaiah said is going to happen in the end. And see if this doesn't sound very familiar to our New Testament ears. Remember, this was written 800 years before the Lord Jesus came to earth. Isaiah writes, Isaiah 25, 6, The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined and aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. The Pharisees got it right theologically that one day there was going to be a great feast, a celebration, when God makes all things right again. Jesus affirms that theology in the parable, but corrects some misunderstandings. Now, what makes this supper, this deep nine, so super? Well, I think there's at least three things. And let's look on your outline now and you'll see them. First of all, this supper is super in its preparation. Verse 16 again, it says, a man was giving a big dinner. Now, here's how it worked in the ancient Middle East. When you gave a big dinner party, a feast, particularly a wedding feast, and, and I believe for reasons I'll share a little later on that this was a wedding feast, you announced to the invitees that a feast was being prepared. You sent out servants to your friends and those that you were going to invite and say, hey, we're going to have a big party. Now, you didn't tell them the exact time of the party, but, but just be prepared. We're going to have a big dinner. And next you would set about putting all of the necessary arrangements in place. You would purchase the food, you would furnish the drinks, you'd set the tables, and you began cooking the meal. And when everything that needed to be done to have this banquet was accomplished, when everything that needed to be done had been done, when the food was prepared, the tables were set, then a second invitation would go out to the invited guest and they would say, come, everything is ready. Well, from the context of this parable, it is clear that the man giving the feast is God. And God sends out slaves, servants, to say to the invited guest, the feast is being prepared, you better get ready. And I take those messengers to be the prophets. Men like Isaiah that we just read about, and Jeremiah and a host of others. Well, finally, once everything was ready, God sent some more messengers to say, it's time. And I take those messengers, first of all, to be John the Baptist, and then ultimately the Lord Jesus. Because when John the Baptist came preaching, and Jesus came after him, they preached the same message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is what? At hand, it's here. You've been waiting for it. You, you were told it's coming. It's here. Time to come to the banquet. Well, not only is the preparation for the supper super, so too is the scope of the supper. Again, verse 16 says, a man was giving a dinner party, comma, and he invited many. Now, what Jesus is 
stressing here that this just wasn't a, any old dinner party for a few close friends. This was a huge banquet with many, many people and seats around the table. This is not a backyard barbecue. I, I take this to be God's general call to everyone to repent and believe. And we see this general call in the New Testament, don't we? In verses like John 3.16, which says, Whosoever will believe will not perish. Romans 10.13, Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That, that is a message that we can preach and should preach to the 7.2 billion people in the world, shouldn't we? That if you will believe and repent and confess the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. And here is the thing, though. These Pharisees seem to have said yes to the first invitation. They read the prophets and they often quoted them and reminded one another that, that it's not always going to be like this. We're not always going to be under the foot of the Romans. There's a Savior and a Messiah that God has promised and one day we'll sit around the banquet and live it up. They, they, they responded affirmatively to the initial invitation. But... When the second invitation went out, when John the Baptist and Jesus showed up and said, the kingdom is at hand, repent and believe, they said a collective, no thank you. They stubbornly, willfully refused to believe. And they began, like the men in the parable, to offer pathetic excuses. Did, did you hear those excuses? They're pitiful, aren't they? The first one, he says, I have bought a piece of land so please consider me excused. Now, how many of you would ever buy a piece of land without going and look at it? Well, even if you would, even if you'd already purchased it, how would that hinder you from going to a banquet? If you've already purchased it, you have the title deed. It's going to be there after the banquet is over. This is a silly excuse. And so the next one, he says, I have purchased five pairs of oxen and I need to prove them. This is a farmer. It would be the equivalent of a farmer today going out and buying a quarter of a million dollar John Deere tractor without ever driving it or seeing if it had the attachments that he needed to do the job. And how silly. No one would buy five pair of oxen without seeing if they were worthwhile. A silly excuse. And then the third one, he says, I got married. <laughs> he doesn't even say excuse me. He just says, I'm not coming. Well, this one is the closest to being biblical because uh, in the Jewish society, when you got married, you were excused from military service for a full year while you established your, your family there. Well, guess what? You were not excused from banquets. You didn't just give up on life for a year just because you got married. And so none of these hold any water at all. The truth is, these men, as they offered their excuses, were revealing that they simply did not like the host provision. Now, this would have been scandalous in Jewish society. These Pharisees would have become angry to hear that someone would be so bold as to turn down such a wonderful invitation. It just wouldn't happen because, remember, they used banquets and parties as a way to climb society's ladder. So... Here's the reality what Jesus is saying. He's talking about them. And how many of them knew that, we're not sure. Because the Pharisees had been saying, we can't wait for the Lord's salvation. They prayed for it publicly. In fact, 
they prided themselves on telling other people, you better be ready. Get ready, they said. But when that salvation came in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth, they said a collective no. They begged off and they made pitiful excuses why Jesus wasn't the Messiah. Now, the real question is, are there ramifications, are there consequences, in other words, for refusing such an invitation from the Lord? Now, I believe there are, and I believe they are the greatest and most severe of consequences because this feast that Jesus alludes to in his parable was of super importance. And that's our third point. This supper was super in its importance. Now, let's read on. It says, then the head of the household, that's God, remember, when the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. Now remember, Jesus just a few moments earlier had said to the host of the party, next time you give a party, don't just invite your friends, but invite the crippled, the lame. And so Jesus uses that same phrasing in this parable and where this head of the household is angry with those who turned down his invitation. He says to his slave, go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the slave said, Master, what you've commanded has already been done, and still there's room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. The blind, the crippled, the beggars, the lame are those that the Pharisees deemed unworthy of anything resembling honor, even here on earth, let alone a great heavenly banquet. Remember when they saw a person who had a long-term infirmity, their assumption was this person was a great sinner. And that teaching had infected nearly all of society. And so there was no great movement in Jewish society to, to build hospitals or places to help the poor or the needy or the lame. They just assume this is God's punishment on them. Jesus, of course, rebuked that. And so they'd had nothing to do with the sort of people that Jesus said were going to be invited in their place. But Jesus wasn't through. Remember, the slave said, we've invited all those people, and yet there's still plenty of room around the table. And so the master, the host of the party says, well, go out to the highways and hedges. Go out to the boondocks. Go out to the out-of-the-way places and invite those people. Now, you remember that Jerusalem was the center of the world to Jewish believers. That's where the temple was. We studied this summer the 15 Psalms of Ascent, that people who would come to Jerusalem, pilgriming there from all over the world, would sing to one another as they made their way up. And, and so they viewed Jerusalem as the epicenter of the universe. And so if we take that into consideration, he's saying, go out from this place where there's a dense population of Pharisees and, and go out into the, the ends of the earth. And so I, I think that the people that Jesus is alluding to here are Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And of course, that's exactly the way human history played out. The scripture says he came into his own, that's Jewish people, and his own received him not. And to this good day, the vast, vast majority of Christians in the world are non-Jewish people. It is at least speaking of everyone who sees themselves 
as an outsider, as unworthy of being at the feast. And, and that's really the point. When Jesus says, go invite the poor and the crippled, the lame, the highways and, and the hedges of life, the outsiders of the world, he understands the implications of that. That those people would have absolutely no way of reciprocating this great honor. Would you agree? They didn't have homes in which they could have a lavish party and invite people to come. They didn't have the means to pay for it if they did. They did not have the social standing to even carry on a conversation in that sort of society. And friends, that is exactly the point. You and I have no way of reciprocating the salvation offered through Jesus Christ. And that's why the scripture says it must be received as a gift. And something that is received as a gift is called grace. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians that salvation is by grace through faith. But that's not simply a New Testament concept. That's exactly what the prophet Isaiah, who they love to quote, said in Isaiah 55.1. He says, Ho, listen, behold, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Now, now this is uh, an interesting phrasing, isn't it? He says, if you're thirsty, come buy water that doesn't cost anything. If you're hungry, come buy food and eat, wine and milk, without money and without cost. The point is, it is free to you, but it costs God everything. Salvation is free, but it's not cheap, is it? It costs the very life of the Lord's dear Son. We have no way of reciprocating that, and so it is foolish for us to try to earn our way to heaven. It is foolish to us to try to come to God on some merit of our own and say, I deserve heaven. We have to come to Him, as I often tell you, on His terms with empty hands and outturned pockets, with the attitude of the tax collector, Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. That is the proper response to be invited to the Lord's table. Well, these people out in the highways of hedges, some of them, I'm sure, were homeless. They, they were living out on the streets and they were unclean. And it was the height of an insult to go to a social gathering dirty in those days, either having dirty garments or a dirty face. They had no means to wash themselves. And again, isn't that the point of the gospel? We are unclean because of our sin, aren't we? When David, the Old Testament saint, recognized his sinfulness, he cried out to God in the 51st Psalm, Lord, forgive me, wash me and I shall be clean. Cleanse me, he said. And of course, John the Apostle wrote, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Yes, all of us are unclean, but for those who receive this invitation as a gift from God, we are washed in the blood of the Lamb, aren't we? We are made clean by Jesus. Well, perhaps these people would have the same objection to going to this wonderful banquet that, that maybe some of you have offered when you get a, a nice invitation to a wedding. I don't have anything to wear. What will I wear? And again, it was... Uh, Poor social etiquette to, to show up in some garment that was not worthy of the occasion. In fact, Jesus tells parables about showing up for the banquet without the proper wedding attire. 
and how those people will not be given entrance. These people that Jesus mentioned, the lame, the blind, the crippled, those homeless in the highways and hedges, they had nothing to wear on such an occasion. And yet Jesus says, come, because he knows he's going to clothe them in the robes of his righteousness. In Revelation chapter 6, you remember there is this wonderful story as John has been given access supernaturally to the throne room of heaven. And the martyred souls of the saints are under the altar there. And they're crying out to the Lord Jesus day and night. How long before you vindicate us till you make all things right? And they're told a little longer. And then the scripture says they are given white robes to wear. And friends, that is the only hope of any of us is not that we show up dressed appropriately, is that we show up and the Lord gives us the robes of his righteousness to, to wear. These Robes speak of the imputed righteousness. The scripture says we must be holy for, we, for He is holy. We are not holy. We are stained by our sin. We are born sinners and we continue to sin and we cannot come to Him on, on our own merit. We will be certainly turned away. But when we come to Him and say, Lord, here I am, have mercy. Not only does He cleanse our sin, He, he engulfs us in the robes of his own righteousness. See, this is the great exchange that happens at the cross for all of those who are saved by faith. He who knew no sin, the Lord Jesus, became sin. The only one who had any inherent righteousness took his sins upon himself and his inherent righteousness was transferred to the account of all those who would believe. We receive his righteousness and therefore God the Father accepts us. Now, these are wonderful truths. Now, how much of this the Pharisees understood is debatable. I think it's uh, pretty clear, given the rest of the book of Luke and the rest of the Gospels, that they understood that Jesus was rebuking them. He wasn't congratulating them and said, Oh, oh yeah, blessed are all y'all. Y'all are going to be in heaven and, and get the seat of honor. No, he's saying, you won't be there unless you humble yourself. But these people that you reject and want to invite to your party on the here and now, if they will accept me, they will be there. I think there's some very clear implications, four in number, that I want to talk about with you now. The first is this. It is not those who think they are worthy of heaven that make it there, but only those who know they are not. It's not those who believe they are worthy of heaven that will make it there, but only those who know they are not. That was true for the Pharisees. That's true for Baptists. Secondly, the only way to get there, that is to heaven, is to accept the invitation. Probably the most important question you can ever ask anyone is, on what grounds do you think you'll go to heaven? Because we must assume that most people think they're going, right? All of the surveys tell us this is the case. The vast, vast majority of people in the world, if you say, do you believe in heaven and hell? They say yes. And if you say, do you think you're going to heaven? They'll say yes. The question is, on what grounds? Why do you think God would let you into heaven? Well, there's really only two fundamental answers. One is by faith alone in Christ alone, and the other is everything else. What I can achieve whether that's in Buddhism, whether that's in Hinduism, whether that's in Mormonism, whether that's in any other ism in the world, they all amount to the same thing. I can earn it. 
I can make myself deserving of entrance into heaven. But the scripture says the only way to heaven is to accept the invitation made possible through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I think there's a couple of more applications to this parable. And another one is this. There will not be one empty seat in heaven. Did you know that? Jesus did not shed his blood in vain. There will be a heaven that is full. Did you know the scripture says in the book of Revelation, when John looked out over the throngs of heaven, he said it was a number that no man could number. Now when we talk about what Jesus said in Matthew, that the way to heaven, the gate to heaven is small, and the path is narrow, and few there be that find it. We're not saying there won't be a lot of people in heaven. We're just saying that there's always going to be more people reject Jesus than accept Jesus. But there's going to be lots of people in heaven. There won't be one empty seat. And fourthly, and most importantly, the consequences of rejecting Christ are terrible and eternal. Those same people who say, I believe I'm going to heaven, even if they reject who Jesus is, think that even if they reject Jesus, it's no big deal. Because they have bought into the notion as, as long as I'm sincere about what I do believe, God is going to accept that and it's all going to be all right for me. And I must tell you, my duty to tell you as a pastor, based on my understanding of the Word of God, that is not so. The consequences of rejecting Christ are terrible and eternal in nature. Because Jesus said in John chapter 14 of himself that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Those are very specific words that he uses. That's the definite article, the way. And, and unless we misunderstand, he says it three times in a row for effect. And no one comes to the Father, he says, except through me. There, there's only one way to heaven, and that is through faith in Christ alone. And so Jesus is saying, in effect, don't miss it. He didn't disagree with the Pharisees when he says it's going to be glorious to eat bread around the Lord's banquet table. Would you agree it's going to be glorious? But he's saying it is going to be glorious, but just don't miss it. Now, I told you earlier in the sermon that I believe this supersized supper that Jesus refers to here in Luke 14 is a wedding feast, though he doesn't say so specifically because of something we read later here in the New Testament. In fact, the very last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 19. Let's turn there in closing. Revelation chapter 19. Again, these are the words of the Apostle John, who was given the great and wonderful privilege of being transported into glory in the future, to seeing how this world's going to play out and how Jesus is going to be worshipped. Every knee's going to bow to him eventually. John was told to write down what he saw. And I take that as for our benefit. Jesus wanted us to know what it's going to be like so that we will anticipate and look forward to it and make sure that we don't miss it. Revelation chapter 19 verse 6, John writes, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. 
Now I take that to be all of heaven is proclaiming angels and saints alike, the Lord reigns. We are celebrating that he is now receiving the glory that he deserves. Now look at verse seven. Here's why they're so happy. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Now here's this picture. I take it the same one that the Pharisees read about back in Isaiah chapter 25. Remember, God's revelation to us is progressive historically. That is, the further we get closer to it, the clearer and more focused it becomes. And now we understand that this feast is not just any feast, it is a wedding feast. It is a celebration of two coming together to live eternally as one. And at a wedding you have a bride and a groom. And the groom is explicitly said to be the Lamb of God. Who is who? The Lord Jesus. And the bride is the church, the redeemed, the saved ones throughout human history, the church universal. And all the pain and, and suffering and the waiting is over. The preparations have been made. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 14? He says, I go to prepare a place for you. And what would happen in those days? A man would be betrothed to a woman, sometimes for over a year. And during that year, he was making preparation. He was getting the house ready. He was making sure there was enough food for the celebration. And when everything was ready, the father would say to the son, go get your bride. Well, the scripture says that's what's going to happen. Paul said, the trumpet will sound. The dead in Christ will rise. And then we will always be with the Lord forever. And it will be glorious. But the Pharisees knew it was going to be glorious. And when it came, John the Baptist said, Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. And they said, no thanks. But what about you, dear friend? It's here. All the preparations have been made. God has done everything that is necessary for you to be saved. Will you receive it? You can't earn it. You can't change enough to be acceptable to God. You, you can't save up enough to buy a suit of clothes that he's pleased with. You have to come to him on his terms, in humility. Empty hands, outturned pockets. Lord, have mercy to me, the sinner. And when you'll come that way, he will say, welcome, come in to the banquet feast. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you have made all the preparations. You had promised through your prophets that a great banquet day is coming. Father, you proclaimed that for hundreds of years. And then when that second invitation came, Jesus said, everything's ready. All the provisions have been made. Even his own people turned it 
down. They made pitiful excuses. And Father, people are making pitiful excuses today. They're saying things like, not yet, I'll be later. They're saying things like, I can go to go there dressed as I am. They're, they're saying, I can get there on my own merit. And Father, all those people are going to be eternally disappointed. The consequences for rejecting this invitation are horrible. And they are eternal in nature. So Father, I pray for every soul in this room that, uh, that all of us would understand that salvation is by grace through faith. It is a gift that must be received, an invitation that must be responded to. Father, I pray if there's any soul in this room who has depended upon anything other than the Lord's grace up until this point, that they would despair of that, that they would run to Jesus, that they would embrace his sacrifice at the cross, that they would come to you on your terms, not theirs. Lord, I pray that you would grant faith and repentance to many for the glory of Jesus in whose name I pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.